Well, good morning, Faith Covenant Church. It is so good to be here with you, and I just want to say again that we really did have an incredible week at Loyalty Park. That really was just a snippet of all of the amazing things that happened there. Um, we got to live out our summer theme of wonder by jumping and playing and singing and doing crafts and just sharing about how good God is with kids and with their families. It was amazing. We got to connect with wonder Uh, that theme of wonder right alongside them, but I know I was also drawn into wonder and awe by simply being around this fun group of kids that we got to get to know. We were playing a game one day uh, where someone starts with a story prompt, like, one day I took a stroll through the park, and then... And somebody else gets to fill in the next sentence, gets to fill in the next line, use their imagination to take us somewhere else, and then everybody else acts it all out together. It was a lot of fun. So we were in a boat, we were in a rocket ship, we were going through secret tunnels, we were going all over the place. I was blown away by the creativity of these kids as we traveled uh, through their imaginations to all kinds of different and strange places. Come to think of it, do you want to try that right now with me? Like, I'm serious. Can we try that right now, right here in church? Is that okay? Great, because I'm on stage. So here's how we're going to do this. I'm just going to start with a prompt, and then I want somebody to raise their hand, and I'll call on you, and we're just going to go with wherever your imagination takes us, okay? One day, I showed up to church and got my coffee from Mission Brew, Mission Mocha, Mission Mocha, but then... What happened? There were bugs in my coffee! But then, it was actually a joke because they don't put bugs in the coffee. But then, <laughs> maybe they were, maybe they weren't in the coffee. But then, they were chocolate bugs. But then, they what? And there were bugs in the sanctuary, but then... They were also made of chocolate. But then... I have enough energy to stay awake in worship time. But then... Apparently everybody fell asleep, so we didn't have the energy to stay awake during worship. Awesome. Well, that was a lot of fun. Uh, It was very enlightening. I now know that many of you really like chocolate, and that's a good thing. Um, I wonder what else we could have come up with, Um, but as we've been in this series, Summer of Wonder, we focused on the need to see things through the eyes of a child. As Jesus said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wonder and awe that are especially apparent in children is what allows us to be open to new possibilities, to new realities. We've been going after this idea that through the eyes of wonder and delight, we encounter creation around us as a mirror that reveals God's very presence within it. And nowhere is it clearer than in other human beings. As we create space for wonder and awe in our life, see, we can't create wonder, we can't create awe, we just have to kind of create space for it and allow the wonder to take over. We just allow the wonder of who God is to take over. 
which is different than worshiping an idol, because in worshiping an idol, you worship a created thing. But in awe and in wonder, you are in awe of how God, the true creator, created others, which means that we are still worshiping God, we are just admiring his handiwork. And last week, we looked at God creating us and the value we possess because we are made in his image like an artist's masterpiece. We are, as David said in the Psalms, fearfully and wonderfully made. When I open myself to the reality that God has not only made me, but each human life and stamped each one of us with his divine image, every time I encounter another person, I have the opportunity to also encounter our creator God, which is a beautiful and mysterious and overwhelming thing in the best of ways, right? To think about every single encounter that way. As we see how God has created others in their uniqueness, we're getting this ever-growing picture of just how good and how amazing and how creative God is. And this is true when we see complete strangers and also people we've known our whole lives. There's always an element of mystery in every relationship with every person. So as we encounter others... We have the opportunity to expand our sometimes narrow view of the world, to swap out our limited, egocentric version of things with what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. Yielding ourselves to God and to his kingdom means to engage the world around us with awe and wonder. Because without awe and wonder, our relationship with God is just flat and sterile and stale and there's nothing there. Because in the presence of the Almighty God, we can't do anything else but be in awe and wonder. What if we were also in awe and wonder of the way God has made our neighbor, our family member, our coworker, the person that we always see walking down on the other side of the street? or maybe on the same side of the street, but we never quite have the courage to say hi. When we yield ourselves to God and to his kingdom, we open ourselves to however God may be working next, especially through others and through their unique story. But that's not how we always experience the world, is it? It's often through a lens of danger or anger or fear or guilt or shame and judgment when we think about others. We find it very normal to keep others maybe at arm's length. In Luke 7, there is just such a story of someone who kept their distance. There's a Pharisee that we learn, uh, his name is Simon. And the story then collides not only, his story not only collides with Jesus, but also someone else in the community who is described simply as a sinful woman. We don't really get much of her backstory or know much else about her other than that. And we're going to look at this collision this morning because it shows how wonder can open us up to the ways that God is working in others and also, hauntingly, what happens when we become closed off and only interested in controlling others. Beginning in Luke 7, verse 36, it says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, 
weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Kind of have a, an image in your mind of, of what's taking place in this scene. Now, sometimes I read the Bible, and I'm amazed at some of the customs of another culture and place. And it would have been normal for uninvited guests to come in and sit in a meal. The houses were a lot less closed off, so that was not abnormal. She didn't sneak in through the window. But this woman's actions towards Jesus were not a part of the culture in Jesus' day. They did not do this. They did not weep over each other's feet and then start wiping with hair. That did not happen. No one was expecting this. But it wasn't just a bit awkward for the people who witnessed this scene. The Pharisees had very, very strict purity codes. And violating them would have been incredibly insulting, incredibly offensive. Being touched by someone who has been deemed a sinner, that would have been at the top of the list of things to never, ever do. So someone doing this to either a Pharisee or one of their guests would have bordered on the obscene. The act of letting down her hair would have been viewed as seductive, especially when also anointing and touching Jesus' feet. Some scholars say that perhaps the only thing that kept people from chasing this woman off, keeping it from a scene of complete and utter scandal, was her tears. This tremendous show of emotion, maybe a mix of joy being in Jesus' presence, maybe also sadness over what has happened in her life, maybe the combination of those two together, and she's clearly overwhelmed. Seduction is not her intention, and yet everyone would have been squirming in their seats. This is how the Pharisee reacts. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The Pharisee who has invited Jesus does two things at once. He not only places judgment on this woman, like he has probably done many times, like many others have done many times before, but then he also judges Jesus. He shows disdain and disgust for the woman, but he also assumes someone who is a prophet Someone who is righteous and holy, who's seeking to imitate the character of God, would be able to discern the character of others around him and would not dare to allow himself to be touched and defiled by a sinner. So in his estimation, Jesus either doesn't know who she is or he does know she's a sinner and he isn't bothered by it. Either way, he can't be a prophet. And for those of us who know the end of the story, the full gospel narrative here, we know Jesus is much more than a prophet. Jesus can, in fact, discern the character of those around him. And so without this Pharisee ever voicing any of this, it says he just thought it, without him ever voicing any of this to Jesus or asking him a question of anything, it says that in verse 40, Jesus answered him. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. This Pharisee um, named Simon, he doesn't really seem very authentic, does he? I mean, what a chipper answer. Like, he just spent a whole bunch of time judging Jesus and this woman, and now all of a sudden he's, tell me, teacher. And he's all ready for whatever it is Jesus has to say. But 
Jesus says two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. That's ironic. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. While truly seeing the otherness in a fellow human being allows us to encounter God in mysterious ways, this story shows us one of the key barriers to that kind of sight. Objectification or making others into objects. Martin Buber, a very famous Austrian Jewish scholar, wrote a book called I, Thou, in which he describes the two different ways we can engage with others around us and the world. The first way is an I-it relationship, where we objectify something. It's impossible not to do this. This stand right here is an it I don't need to engage with it. It's doing its job. The chair you're sitting in is an it. You don't need to engage with it. It's doing its job. And we see a table and decide if it's good for sitting around, working on, eating. It's not a person. It's just an it. But the other way of interacting with the world is an I-thou relationship. It's where we're interacting with the world when we see another person unique and unable to be controlled by us. We have to engage with them. We have to listen to them. We have to hear their story. We have to see them, knowing that they are made in the image of God just as we are, and we recognize and we honor their otherness. They're not the same as we are, and that's okay, and they also bear the image of God. They are a unique person, and it is when we truly see that whole picture that we have seen someone, not just seen what we want to see, or seeing just a stereotype playing out in our mind, it's impossible, of course, to have that kind of intentionality with every single person on the planet. You pass by a lot of people every day because they're just headed in another direction. Our day is only so long. We've, only, we've got lots of responsibilities sometimes that crowd in, but over and over again, the story of humanity has tragically been that when we are directing our focus and attention towards others, especially those that we deem to be, not, uh, be, deemed to be very much not like us, we put them in the I-it category. We know the person isn't an inanimate object, but we treat them nonetheless as something to be explained, like a problem just to be solved, something to be controlled or evaluated or judged. They may just be an obstacle in our way, and then by making them in it, we can look right past them. 
We can absolutely treat others this way, even if we have a conversation with them, even a kind conversation, because you can speak with someone else and not really hear them, not really engage, not really see them. So the answer to Jesus' question to Simon, do you see this woman? No. Simon had not seen this woman. He knew she was there, clearly. He was disturbed by her presence. But he had not seen her. He had objectified her. She was only a disgusting distraction to be removed as soon as possible. A reason also then why Jesus couldn't be a prophet. He was, she was a violation of all the religious rules just by having her even in the house. She was an obstacle to his dinner party. They were having so much fun until she showed up. But Jesus is also drawing Simon's attention to this woman by pointing out to him the tremendous hospitality that she has shown Jesus. While in someone else's house, nonetheless, this hospitality did not expect anything in return. She clearly has zero desire to climb the social ladder with such an outrageous act like this that would have offended so many people. In fact, talk about brave I mean, she knew this was a Pharisee's house, and she still went there. She knew that this Pharisee probably knew about her reputation, and she still went there because she just wanted to see Jesus. And perfume like this would have been very expensive. So this was no small thing. This woman didn't just show up. It wasn't just be like, oh, Jesus is down the street. I think he's a good speaker. I'll go see what he's doing. No, we, we don't get her whole backstory here, but you can tell that this woman must have heard Jesus' teaching and was so moved, felt so seen by him already, heard about this God who loved her so much and was calling out to her with love and forgiveness without ever meeting Jesus in person, only hearing Jesus possibly from a distance. She has already had an encounter with the living God and it draws her to this moment to push past every social norm imaginable to fall at Jesus' feet. This is what pure gratitude looks like. And meanwhile, Jesus says that Simon had ignored a lot of the ordinary acts of hospitality, especially if you were going to really, truly honor someone. They wouldn't have been requirements, sure. They, they weren't things that Simon had to do if he was going to invite someone into his house. I mean, had he provided a meal? Sure. But Why? It's almost like he was making this calculated social chess move because he liked to entertain important people. And if he could get away without offering too much hospitality, well, then more for himself later. See, Simon hadn't been moved by Jesus' teaching and impacted by the radical grace of God. We see that in the story. He just liked the idea of having a rising star in his home. So Simon has not only objectified this woman, he has failed to really see Jesus or understand who he is. And before we go too far, though, down that path of judging Simon ourselves, we should take a pause. Because as I studied this passage this week, I found a lot of places where there was commentaries or books that described this woman as a prostitute. But Luke never says that doesn't say that anywhere in Luke 7 at all. It simply says that she was a sinful woman. 
But people would just make this statement, and it wasn't as though it was a point of debate. It was just stated, like, oh, well, it must be obvious. That must be what her story is. But we don't get any more details, do we? But how interesting that even we today, looking only at a few words to describe her, have found it so easy to form opinions about her, what her life must have been like, what her choices must have been, that whatever that sin must have been in her life. And just as this woman saw Jesus and came to lavish so much hospitality on him, Jesus saw this woman for much more, much more than her reputation. He saw her as a beloved child of God. And he declares over her, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. In David Benner's book, Soulful Spirituality, he says that a truly authentic spirituality in the way of Jesus means we are invited to recognize and prize the otherness we see in the people we encounter rather than simply seeing them as extensions of ourselves or using them as containers for our own projections. If we fail to recognize the other in the people we encounter, we have no chance of discerning the presence of the transcendent other, God. I think what Benner is getting at here is connected with what Jesus said the two greatest commandments are, to love God and with all your heart and soul and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and then loving others, not one without the other. If we do not see someone, truly see them, to see their otherness, know they are not the same as us and that's okay, and to embrace them still as someone made in God's image, we cannot love them, right? If we don't truly see them, how can we truly love them? If we just see them based on what we assume as a stereotype, based on their reputation, if we do not see them like Jesus saw this woman, people will just be an object. We may treat them with politeness, kindness, a friendly face, but will it just be on the surface? Will it really be love? Benner also observes that we often have an undercurrent of fear as we engage with others, that leads to this distance. Since their experience is different than ours, we see it as a threat. There is a potential that if we truly engage with them, maybe we could be affected, maybe we could be changed, maybe we could be impacted. Even more so than Simon was afraid of being touched by this woman because of the uncleanness it might bring on him, And so we keep them at arm's length and we put them in a box. And this is the root of every form of prejudice, whether it's classism or ageism or racism or sexism. These all come from seeing only a stereotype and nothing more. And today we're often uncomfortable with admitting when we see others through a stereotype. Like if the first thought to jump into our head is a stereotype, we don't want to just blast it out, right? That's not usually the thing that we want to say. We try to filter that a little bit. But what if we were able to be a little bit more honest about that with ourselves and with God? What if the Holy Spirit could start to awaken curiosity in us for others rather than being stuck with a narrow understanding of those we encounter and those we even observe from afar? When we see other people as image bearers, understanding who they truly are, then we are drawn to the wonder of also who God is 
and how He has created them. But when we don't see otherness in a person, when we don't see them as uniquely made in the image of God, we have missed out on an opportunity before us to wonder and be in awe of what God has done, of who God has made, and how He is working in the world in ways we cannot fully comprehend or fathom. Later in the book of Luke, Jesus continues to have the same tension all over again with some other Pharisees, but this time it's turned around a bit because Jesus is in a sinner's house rather than a Pharisee's house. And in Luke 15, it says that as he's spending time with them, the Pharisees, of course, go right on grumbling, and Jesus tells three parables in response, but the first is the parable of the lost sheep. I was talking with a woman at our former church in California. She has worked as a shepherdess, and she has said it's not abnormal um, to leave the flock to go after the lost sheep. You all know the parable, right? There's 99 sheep, but the shepherd is going to go after the, the one lost sheep that's wandered off to go find it. But that's actually not an abnormal thing at all. It happens all the time. And what would happen is the shepherd would not be abandoning the other 99 there would be maybe another few shepherds that would stay with the 99. Perhaps those 99 sheep would be safe at home in the sheep pen. See, the shepherd would leave the flock in the capable hands of others to go find the one who's wandered. It's a normal part of caring for sheep. The shocking part is that Jesus uses this image to challenge the Pharisees' claim that these sinners are no longer part of the flock. So let them get eaten by a wolf. They've made too many mistakes. They're tainted. They're unclean. Stay away from them. And Jesus says, no, the sheep has just wandered. They're still very much part of the flock. The shepherd is going to go look for them. How much easier, though, to just abandon the one who's wandered? To see them as a problem that's better off far away from me. The tragedy is that when we fail to see Others, as Jesus sees them without realizing it, it is also we who have wandered. We who have wandered from the heart of God, just like Simon did. But if this objectification process that feels far too easy is what keeps us from seeing others as made in God's image, how can we allow then the Holy Spirit to awaken something different in us? How can we allow God's grace to turn us around and turn us towards seeing others like Jesus did? In Mike Iaconelli's book, Dangerous Wonder, he poses this question that if, as Jesus told us, entering the kingdom of God is about becoming like a little child, well, how do children relate to each other? They play together, right? They play together all the time. I can't imagine that, that Jesus, as he's sitting down at the table, if he's all serious face and this woman comes up and starts crying all over his feet and wiping them with her, with her hair, I don't think a serious Jesus would have worked very well. I think Jesus has is, is got a very cheerful expression on his face when this happens. I think he's, he's got a playfulness about him that allows this and welcomes this to be able to see this gratitude unfolding at his feet. Maybe out of everything we could possibly do, having fun together could break past all the barriers of stereotypes and objectification. And not just a little fun, but the kind of play that children find so natural, filled with imagination and curiosity and laughter and spontaneity. 
You can't hang around kids for very long without this kind of playfulness coming out. You remember when you were a kid and you were in first grade and some new kid had moved in and they were from several states away that you'd never been to? What did you do? <gasps> You're from where? What's it like? Oh my gosh, do they really have tornadoes there? Hurricanes? Oh, Disney World. I've never been there before. You know, all of these things, you're just so curious. You want to just play with them. And in his book, Mike tells the story about a warm summer evening when the neighbor boys have a game of basketball going with the truck doors open, truck lights are on, loud music's going. They're having a good time. But these neighbor boys always knew that Mike was a pastor. So they always kept their distance a little. They always assumed he would be a, little, he'd be a little uptight, right? I mean, he's a pastor, so clearly pastors are uptight. Um, not ready for any kind of fun. So with all this ruckus next door, Mike naturally looks over at his wife and he says, hey, you know, the 4th of July was just a couple weeks ago. She goes, so what? You have a calendar? He says, well, we've still got some fireworks. You want to have a little fun? And she looks at him and says, please tell me that you're serious and they go out, and they get a bunch of firecrackers, and they run over to the fence. First, they take one firecracker, and they throw it over. Boom! But no reaction. There's too much music. There's too much chaos going on. So they say, now we're going to give them the whole thing. So then they light a big, long string of firecrackers, throw it over to the side. All of a sudden, just chaos breaks loose. And all the kids, all the boys just duck down, the truck lights shut off, the music shuts off, the, get down! What was that? Where did that come from? Did you see that? Who did that? Was it the neighbor kids? Nobody has any idea what's going on, but Mike and his, his wife are kind of tucked away behind a tree, and so they're just sort of cheerfully watching this whole scene unfold. And, and they're looking as the boys are kind of peeking over the fence, trying to find where these people were. Where did this come from? Boom! All of a sudden, a flashlight hits them. Another boy had snuck around the fence the other way, and the flashlight is shining on them, and then he lifts it slowly up to their faces, and his jaw is on the floor, because he's just trying to process what he's seen. And he goes, guys, it's the parents! And he said, all of a sudden, the entire relationship with these boys changed. In 10 minutes, he said his house was covered with toilet paper. And then naturally, he retaliated with water balloons. And he said it was awesome. Everything had changed with these neighbor boys. After that, there was joking. There was laughter between them. It wasn't the same distance that there had been before. And this desire for play that's so natural to children is something that Mike says comes from God. While Jesus would often speak to people about very serious matters, he reminds us Jesus was also playful in the way that he would speak about these things, with all sorts of sayings, with parables that kind of danced around things, kind of got behind people's defenses a little bit. In Mike, Mike's words, Jesus would verbally spar with his critics. He'd play with his listeners. And he also says God seems to be almost playing hide and go seek with us in creation all around us and in other people, which means God is the source of playfulness. God is playfully waiting for us to find him, hiding not only in the wonder of creation around us, but in the many experiences of life, the good and the bad. And he is also playing hide and go seek through each other. 
at whatever stage of life we are in. No matter how many times we've read the Bible or heard the gospel, there are incredible lessons we have yet to learn and amazing things yet to be discovered that can only come because we are seeing those around us made in God's image with a holy kind of curiosity about how God is at work in you or in you or in you. And God doesn't just hide. He also seeks us out. Jesus taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus is the ultimate act of seeking us out. Have you ever had a moment before when it seems like God met you in a mysterious way by sending someone along your path when you desperately needed it? Have you ever had the opportunity to be that person in someone else's journey? What if we, with a playful kind of anticipation, were eagerly waiting for the next opportunity to see God at work in those around us? What if playfulness is what our spirituality and relationship with God needs more than anything? See, we have the joy this morning to take communion together in just a few moments where we all, through our many different unique stories of sin and redemption, mistakes and healing, joy and sorrow, we come together to remember what Jesus did for us. Just as we believe that Jesus is present with us as we take this bread and this cup, remember God is also present with us through those around us this morning who are also made in His image. So let's continue to worship our incredible God this morning. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. God, thank you for your playfulness. Thank you that your playfulness awakens our playfulness. Thank you that you are hiding, not in some far-off place, but you are hiding around every corner and every bush and every tree and every person just eagerly waiting for us to see how you are at work. God, give us the ability to be patient long enough to truly play that game of hide-and-go-seek that you seem so eager to draw us into. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would transform the way that we see, that we would be able to truly see others as you see them. Amen.